During the five decades of my career, I've seen significant improvements in the commitment by universities to the academic, athletic, and personal experiences of student-athletes. From state-of-the-art academic support services, elite coaching and training, athletic facilities, to the much-improved equipment, safety requirements, and emerging NCAA permissive benefits, our student-athletes have never had it better. The Division I member schools are working very diligently, even as we speak, to create a new decision-making structure that will yield practical and, I hope, timely results on all of these issues. I agree there are very important changes that need to be made, and many university presidents happen to agree with me. Let me describe the most important ones. First, student-athletes, in my opinion, should be given a scholarship for life. Second, scholarships should cover the full and actual cost of attendance, not simply tuition, room and board, books and supplies. Third, NCAA schools must always lead in the area of health and safety. Fourth, the NCAA must work assertively with all of our universities on sexual assault prevention and support for victims. Fifth, while all student athletes today are covered by insurance for injuries and the NCAA covers catastrophic injuries, any gaps in coverage must be closed. Sixth, the academic success of student athletes must remain our ultimate priority. Finally, all changes that are made, these and others, must maintain a support for Title IX and cannot come at the cost of student-athletes in women's and non-revenue-generating sports. Dr. Emmer has uh, basically said uh, these are his proposals, uh, and I think it goes right to what we're trying to accomplish here. Now, I guess my question to you, Dr. Emmert, is why wasn't this made public at the time? Because I think most of these universities would be embarrassed if they were publicly called out that they were unwilling to give a four-year scholarship to an athlete. So why did it take a request from Congress for this roll call for this to ever reach the light of day? And I would ask for this list to be made part of the public record. Well, I, I think that my sense, and I have a lot of questions about transparency of money and about whether or not things are made public, I, I feel for you because in part of me thinks you're captured by those that you're supposed to regulate, but then you're supposed to regulate those that you're captured by. And I can't tell whether you're in charge or whether you're a minion to them. You know, I, I don't sense that you feel like you have any control of this situation, and if you have no control, if you're merely a monetary pass-through, why should you even exist? To me, the, the least hopeful thing I heard today is that we are looking to these same 65 schools that are the most commercialized as the engine of reform in the NCAA. I, I really don't see that. They may give higher compensation, they may give more tips, but they're the ones that created most of these problems in the first place. And, and I don't think that the big schools are going to do anything other than be driven more and more by the market in athletics. And quite frankly, those schools exploit their athletes both as players and as students. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And you can also check out my blog at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Okay. So in the very first episode of this podcast, I talked about three fundamental 
truths that I had arrived at in my reconnection with all of these athletes' rights issues that, that date back to really the 1980s. And I just want to repeat these three truths because they are so present in what we're going to talk about in this episode, and that is the Power Five's clear strategy starting in really 2013, but accelerating in 2014 to completely take themselves out of the NCAA governance process and to essentially create a separate association within the association of the uh, big NCAA tent. And that was done through this autonomy legislation. And the autonomy process is so important because we hear about that as just this thing that happened as if it was just an ordinary procedural change in the structure of the NCAA. But nobody talks honestly about the context in which it arose, what the true motivations of the people were and the institutions and the conferences were that promoted this autonomy classification and the true import of what that autonomy classification meant on the backside. And so these three fundamental truths, uh, number one, Nothing about big-time college sports is as it's portrayed to the public. Number two, almost everything we know about college sports comes from institutions and interests and people who have a direct financial stake in it. And number three, the last fundamental truth, when it comes to the business of big-time college sports, it is always, always about the money, the power, and the perception. So, in talking about this autonomy campaign that the Power Five, I think, formally conceptualized in 2013 and then carried into this crazy year of 2014, it's really important to understand where that originated, what the principles were that the Power Five were trying to pursue, and then what were the true underlying motives of the autonomy movement. And I'm going to start in actually late 2013, because in November of 2013, the Power Five conferences, and again, the Power Five are the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC. Those five conferences made a presentation to the NCAA Division I Board of Directors subcommittee on restructuring the NCAA that laid out the case for a separate autonomy classification for the Power Five. The document was submitted and presumably drafted in large part by the president of the University of Florida, which is in the SEC, and then the chancellor of the University of Nebraska, which was a new member of the Big Ten after conference realignment. It's dated November 25th, 2013. And I got this document from the bowels of the O'Bannon electronic vaults, and it is marked confidential. And I don't know if that marking was on the original document or whether the NCAA and Power Five attorneys labeled it confidential when they produced it in Discovery in O'Bannon. But it's clearly a document that I don't think the authors and the conferences really wanted the public to see or to scrutinize because it really underscores the extent to which the Power Five have complete dominance over the NCAA and how much they are driven by money, market share, 
and achieving a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market rather than athlete well-being. But true to a form for all of these big institutional power brokers, they couch all of their cynical power plays around athlete well-being and what's good for the athlete. So remember that in 2013, the primary external threats to the big-time Power Five and NCAA business model were Congress and then federal courts because you had O'Bannon really kicking into gear. And under the timeline that I went through in 2014 in the last episode, remember that the O'Bannon case at this time in late 2013, it was headed into the trial phase. And the trial was conducted in June of 2014. So I think by the uh, late fall of 2013, most of the movers and shakers in big-time college sports had a sense that Judge Wilkin in O'Bannon was uh, very likely to issue a ruling that was going to be a substantial body blow to the principle of amateurism. And so the powerful uh, football interest, and again, this is a football show, and when you, when I'm going to go through the, this document in some detail, and then another document that followed it in 2014, but you really see that this is all about football. And the movers and shakers for this autonomy classification were the big-time powerful football interests. So this November 25th, 2013 document is presented as quote-unquote testimony to this subcommittee of the Division I Board of Directors. And remember, the Division I Board of Directors is really the most powerful legislative body in the entire NCAA. You have the Board of Governors, which is this association-wide governing body. Then you have the Division I Board of Directors, and that's really where the rubber meets the road at a policy level and at a legislation level. And so they're going to be deciding whether or not to grant the Power Five the autonomy classification they're seeking. And remember, and I went through this in the initial timeline in the last episode, on August 6th, just two days before Judge Wilkin issues her opinion in O'Bannon, the Division I Board of Directors votes 16 to 2 in favor of granting the Power Five autonomy. So why did that happen? And this memo This November 25th, 2013 memo is the blueprint for that decision. So let's take a look at it. And the authors begin that document by saying, we offer the following testimony on behalf of the president's chancellor's athletics directors and power five conferences. This testimony sets out commonly held views of why we seek structural change. We also seek to clarify how the envisioned structure might be implemented. The five conferences make this proposal with the intention of rebuilding a strong national organization in support of intercollegiate athletics, but one that also recognizes the diversity of institutions that comprise its membership. That's classic BS. What do they really want? They want to protect the revenue streams in football primarily and men's basketball secondarily. So the testimony is divided into headings. The first heading is, why do we seek structural changes? And they go through all this malarkey about how important college athletics is and particularly how big-time football and big-time men's basketball is a part of American culture. And they specifically reference the new college football playoff. They refer to it as the National Football Championship. And then, of course, the Final Four. And they talk about its importance in American life. And then they get to really, 
I think the central purpose here, and that is that they see pressure mounting from external regulators. They want to get ahead of the game to make it appear as if they are offering something of value to these athletes that is historic and and unprecedented and it's a great leap forward for the welfare of revenue-producing athletes to prevent what they call, quote-unquote, radical proposals for reform that, in the view of the uh, Power Five, are inconsistent with the nature of intercollegiate athletics within the context of higher education. And then they say, we are subjected to litigation and potential legislation that may have dramatic and uncertain consequences for our programs. So they're explicitly stating out loud in this confidential memorandum that they are concerned about two things in 2013, late 2013. One, is legislation, what's that's Congress, because the state legislatures really aren't part of this discussion in, in 2013, 2014. And number two, litigation. And the litigation that was the direct threat to them in 2013 was O'Bannon. So they explicitly acknowledge that they're trying to get ahead of those two external regulatory threats through this autonomy classification. And their concern is that if they don't, if they don't do this and try to get ahead of this momentum on athletes' rights, then the uh, radical proposals that might come out from the Senate or the House of Representatives on the one hand or from a federal judge and a fe- in federal courts on the other are going to redefine college sports. And then the Power Five, they, they just get to the heart of the matter by saying that these criticisms, the ones coming from external regulators, such as federal courts and these antitrust lawsuits and in Congress, these criticisms and any reform that they may provoke will have a differential impact on the institutions of our five conferences. We operate the most visible and competitive programs, and we generate the most revenue. And they say, we have the most to lose if ill-advised reforms are proposed. And then the Power Five conferences go into a second section of this testimony, and it's titled, What Do We Want? And they say, at its most basic level, we want to be able to control our own destiny so that we may create a modern system of intercollegiate athletics, which in turn will preserve the enterprise for all institutions and provide appropriate support for our student athletes. Yet, we also want to participate as colleagues within an NCAA that embraces the full range of institutions and works to promote and improve intercollegiate athletics within the context of higher education. So what does that mean? We want to have our cake and eat it too. They've been doing that since the 1970s. And here they're just coming out and saying it. And they are protecting their financial interests. They are protecting their conference interests. And they're doing this under the guise of preserving the enterprise for all institutions. But they're careful in the language they use not to suggest that they're going to leave the NCAA if they don't get their way. And so they make some reference to wanting to stay under the NCAA umbrella. And as I discussed in the episodes on the prisoner's dilemma, they have an enormous incentive to stay under the NCAA umbrella because they don't have to pay for any of the administrative overhead. Basketball does that. Football does not. So in this section, what do we want? They identify the list of the things that they 
want to achieve through autonomy legislation and the context in which it would be implemented. The very first thing right off the bat, and this goes to the heart of this unholy triangle between the NCAA national office, the big time powerful football interests, and the March Madness money. And again, this is the Rosetta Stone to understanding the entire business of big time college sports. But they want to make it very clear to the NCAA that they're going to let them get this March Madness money. So here's what they say. The current rules regarding access to NCAA basketball championships and the distribution of NCAA revenue would be maintained. We seek control of our own destiny with the least disruption to the expectations of other institutions. So this goes back to this fundamental reality in the business model. And this arises from Board of Regents and football's financial freedom from the NCAA. That football keeps all this money. But basketball is the really the only revenue source for the NCAA. And the NCAA takes that money and it makes the NCAA national office fat and happy and then it spreads that money around to downstream beneficiaries so making this the very first point of their proposal for autonomy is saying to the in-system status quo stakeholders the NCAA national office and all these downstream beneficiaries of March Madness money including block grants to division two and division three and all of this committee structure and all this ridiculous bureaucracy we're not going to interrupt that we are not going to do anything that interferes with your goose that lays the golden egg. And that is the CBS Turner March Madness contract. Number two, the five conferences would have legislative autonomy over areas of regulation that are most sensitive to the differentiation of institutions and resources. Don't you love that language? So let's see, such areas would include, so these are really the substantive areas of autonomy where the power five want to say, this is in our wheelhouse, nobody else is going to have this authority, and we want to do the following. One, they want to be able to define what constitutes a full scholarship and that it might include but not exceed the full cost of attendance. So again, we're back to cost of attendance and we don't have the O'Bannon decision where that was a remedy. We don't have any movement at the voluntary rules-making level and that's still a live issue and it's a controversial issue. So what they're saying is, yes, we want to be able to raise the compensation limit, this overarching compensation limit that the entire business model is premised on to fix the cost of labor, we want to raise that to include the full cost of attendance, but not go above that, which is also saying we want this additional benefit, we can afford to do it, but we're not saying that we want to have the authority to just open the market to outright pay for play. Number two, the definition of permissible benefits that institutions could offer to student athletes under this autonomy classification include one, a lifetime scholarship to offer an undergraduate education after a player's eligibility expires and the, the lifetime scholarship. And remember this list, because when we get to Mark Emmert's testimony before the Senate in July of 2014, you're going to hear a lot of this stuff. Okay, number two, insurance or other financial support for health and safety. Three, support in recruiting to permit families of student-athletes to accompany and advise student-athletes on official visits. Four, relaxation of rules 
restricting food and other support provided to student-athletes during their playing careers. All right, then let's see the next thing. Authorizing more comprehensive support for academically at-risk student-athletes with enhanced criteria for playing eligibility. So we're basically going to lower standards. And then we're going to redefine rules governing agents and advisors to assure student-athletes have access to good advice relating to their future careers. So I just want to stop there because that's the laundry list of the things they want to offer. These amazing benefits are going to be transformative for these athletes. But I just want to point out at this stage of this presentation, of this testimony, that all of these things that the Power Five lay out in this document are things that have been a part of the discussion in the athletes' rights movement for decades. And this full cost of attendance scholarship, as we've discussed in prior episodes, that goes back really to 1956 when they were permitted through laundry money. And then that was revoked in 1973. And then the NCAA pretended well into the 21st century that any payment above the old scholarship limit that was set below the full cost of attending college would be outright pay for play and transform these athletes into professional athletes. And it would destroy college sports as we know it, all that stuff. So all of a sudden, this is just a a wonderful thing we're going to do for these athletes. And all this stuff about the lifetime scholarship and insurance and all of these and food, all these things. The only reason that those are perceived as enhancements for the student athletes is because the NCAA and the Power Five have historically and steadfastly refused to offer those things under their draconian conceptualization of amateurism-based compensation limits. So now these are just landmark acts of magnanimity. But again, they're not comparing these benefits to what the athletes are actually worth. They're using these benefits as some great leap forward from the old baseline, which was nothing, was zero. So they list out these things, and then they add a paragraph where they explain what the autonomy structure would look like. And they say the Power Five would have the authority to create its own independent process for considering and adopting legislation in its area of autonomy separate from the current NCAA legislative process. And they say there is considerable interest in developing a process that is simplified and is managed by athletics directors, faculty athletic representatives, and others who best understand the realities of competition at the highest level. Presidential control would remain a feature of such a process. Such a separate process would also facilitate conversations among the affected institutions to achieve consensus. Legislation adopted by the Power Five within its exclusive authority would not be subject to override or modification by any process that involved more than Power Five institutions. There's a lot in that paragraph. And what you see there is a very subtle but unmistakable movement away from this entire concept of presidential control over intercollegiate athletics. The entire reform movement from the 1920s through the Knight Commission work and into the 21st century and through Miles Brand's tenure was premised on presidential authority and control over the governance and institutional responsibility for 
intercollegiate athletics. And what the Power Five are saying in this paragraph is, yeah, we'll have presidents on the radar screen, but they really don't understand the business. So this is best left to the athletics directors, faculty athletics representatives who are appointed by presidents and they really are there to do the bidding of the athletics department. That's significant because that is a substantial departure from this message that the NCAA and the uh, Power Five conferences and all these presidents put out there when they are chest pounding about the integrity of big time college sports. And so then the next component of the proposal is that legislation adopted within this autonomy authority would be applicable only to those institutions in the power five. Other institutions or conferences could comply at their individual discretion. That's important too. And this gets to an entirely separate purpose of this whole autonomy classification. And you have to remember, again, what the relationship has been historically between the Power Five conferences and this next group of conferences, now called the Group of Five. And these are the second tier, kind of the junior varsity big time college football conferences who have been trying mightily to keep up with the Power Five. And what the Power Five are doing here is they are creating almost an insurmountable competitive advantage for the Power Five relative to this next group of contenders. And and, and also remember that this 2013 memo is the year after the big-time football interests form the college football playoff. They've brought the group of five in, and as I've mentioned in prior episodes, that was really as an immunity shield because going back to the 1990s when the big-time football interest had the bowl championship series and they were keeping all the money, there were all of these concerns that the second group of conferences were being frozen out and that there were legitimate antitrust concerns because of that, and that spurred these hearings in the 90s and then in 2000. 2003 and really leading into this 2013-2014 period. So through this structuring, the Power Five basically price out the, the second group of conferences. And although the second group of conferences can try to keep up if they want to, they have the ability to provide the benefits that the autonomy legislation would grant the Power Five, they're simply not going to be able to do it. And when they're looking at the best football players in the United States, they can offer a package. They can afford to offer a package. They have the authority to offer a package that this lower tier of conferences simply can't, at least not without going broke. And then as they're closing out this testimonial memo, they talk about something that's really important. And if you didn't understand in detail the history of big-time football's takeover of the NCAA governance process, it may not seem uh, very significant, but I think it is. So they say, while the Power Five has not addressed other issues associated with governance at this time, there are matters that we would want to discuss within the broader NCAA structure. We would seek clarification of the allocation of authority between the Division I Board of Directors and the current executive committee, and and that really means the board, that's what is now the Board of Governors. We would expect the Division I Board of Directors to have primary authority over these matters that differentially impact Division I schools. What they're saying is, we don't want the association-wide governing body weighing in on this. We want this just to be between 
between the boys in the Power Five and the boys on the Division One Board of Directors. And again, through this uh, hostile takeover of NCAA governance, which started really back in the 1970s, and Division One governance is defined explicitly by football interests. And the Division One Board of Directors is the power center of those football interests. So basically, what the Power Five are asking for here is just audacious, and it is bold. And they are basically implementing a complete takeover of the legislative process and the areas that give them a competitive advantage and also keep these external regulators at bay. And they're not going to have any resistance within the NCAA association structure. And then they throw in a paragraph on the enforcement process. And it's no secret that the enforcement process has focused historically on recruiting. And the recruiting is most intense in big-time football and big-time men's basketball because that's where the recruiting wars uh, are at their apex. And you have had this traditional battle back and forth between the big-time football and basketball schools and the NCAA enforcement mechanism. I'm going to talk about that in in another episode. But what they say is, we also believe our institutions have a more significant stake in the enforcement process. Unfortunately, but understandably, our member institutions are often the targets for enforcement, are the most visible when those infractions occur, and have the most to lose if violations are found. We have the strongest stake in fashioning an enforcement mechanism that is and is perceived to be fair and even-handed. And then they go on to say there are other models for enforcing regulatory regimes that should be examined. We intend to impanel expertise from outside the NCAA to help us fashion a modern enforcement process, and we would want the authority to adopt it for enforcement of rules against our institutions. Again, if this process were found appropriate by other institutions, it could be adopted across the NCAA. So basically they're saying we basically want to be taken completely out of the enforcement and infractions process. We want to have our own enforcement entity. And gosh, if it works, then maybe the whole NCAA can use that. This is just a complete separation of the Power Five from all aspects of the most central functions of the NCAA. And when I say that the Power Five wanted an association within an association, that's exactly what I'm referring to. And they make it explicitly clear here. The last sentence of this memo says... Our primary operating principle is to be free to create for those student-athletes who compete at the highest level and most visible level a regulatory structure that responds to the realities and demands of the 21st century and yet is consistent with the values associated with higher education. And then you're back into this ridiculous formulation of the business of big-time college sports that reflects Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. And this fundamental tension that's existed since the early part of the 20th century between the professionalized, commercialized version of big-time football and big-time men's basketball and the principles of higher education and academic integrity and the mission of American institutions of higher education. And remember, this memo is under the name of two university CEOs, the president of the University of Florida and the chancellor of the University of Nebraska. So the university presidents who have been demanding to be in control of big time 
college sports really going back to the 1920s, as I mentioned earlier. They're now the uh, leaders in making the case that the athletics directors and the athletics people who know better should be making these decisions. And they have laid down the blueprint for the most professionalized, commercialized product that you can imagine in the college sports marketplace. And they're saying that this is absolutely essential to protect their interests and the broader interests of college sports. The the irony of that is simply breathtaking. And it really calls out this fundamental hypocrisy among the Power Five university presidents and chancellors who beat their chest whenever something goes wrong and they're talking about academic integrity and intellectual mission of higher education and all this stuff. But these very same university presidents and chancellors are behind the scenes advocating for the authority to completely dominate the NCAA and to pursue their commercial interests that have absolutely nothing to do with the integrity of higher education. And they want to do that without any external interference including interference within the NCAA from interests outside of the Power Five. And it's, it's just stunning. This memo is a stunning admission that the university presidents and chancellors don't give a damn about the academic integrity or intellectual purity of higher education. They want money. They want power. They want publicity. They want prestige. They want social currency. All the things that I talked about in episode two that universities crave. And this is the crystal meth that gets them to that. It's professionalized and commercialized, big-time Power Five football and big-time Power Five men's basketball. So now... We transition into 2014, and then, as we discussed in the last episode, all hell breaks loose in January with this Northwestern Labor Relations Board action, and then a decision that came in March after the hearing in February. So you have this panic that has just overtaken the in-system status quo stakeholder beneficiaries in big-time college sports. And on the backside of that, on May 14th, 2014, and again, this is before the O'Bannon trial, but it's after the Northwestern case, the PAC-12 conference and all of the university presidents in the PAC-12 conference, they write a letter to the other Power Five conference colleagues, and they are basically making the same case that was made in November of 2013, but now with the additional sense of urgency because of the Northwestern case. It's a dear colleague's letter. It's not very long, but I want to go through it because this really became the template, a more specific template for what Mark Emmert used just two months later when he testified before the Senate, but did not disclose that he was doing the Power Five's bidding. So this dear colleague's letter says, uh, we are writing to you, our colleagues at the member institutions of the PAC-12's four peer conferences, because we believe the events of the last few months, and that's the Northwestern case, have underscored the urgency with which we must move forward in reforming the rules that govern intercollegiate athletics and because we believe that bold rather than incremental action must be taken now. 
So they talk about autonomy and they say, because it is essential that the issue of autonomy and the specific reforms we intend to enact once given that autonomy be clear coming out of the NCAA meeting in August. So remember, the NCAA has their convention in January and then every August they have their meeting where they actually implement legislation. And what the Power Five conferences want in 2014 is for the autonomy classification and the contours of autonomy governance and legislation be put into NCAA rules and regulations in the August 2014 meeting. And so they are really putting the heat on the NCAA and they are really aggregating their power. So remember, we're in 2014. We're just on the backside of this full formation of the Power Five that exists as the Power Five. Today, they've done the CFP deal. They're moving into an entirely new era of the aggregation of power of the big-time football interests and, and secondarily the big-time basketball interests. And they're flexing their muscles. They're really saying, hey, this is going to happen. It has to happen. The Pac-12 presidents then go on to say, we are confident that you share our sense of urgency. A loss of momentum at this crucial time could leave the field to more extreme viewpoints that seek either to do away with college athletics entirely or professionalize them. And then the letter says, for these reasons, we have outlined below our principal objectives for reform, addressing both, and both is in italics, both the need to increase the funding for student-athlete-driven initiatives and the restoration of academic primacy to the mission of intercollegiate athletics. So let's take a quick look at this 10-point list that the Pac-12 puts together. And again, remember, this largely dovetails with the November 2013 memo to the Division I Board of Directors, and it is virtually identical to what Mark Emmert rolls out just two months later in his testimony in the Senate. So number one is uh, permit full cost of attendance scholarships. And that's number one for a reason, because it's the sort of the uh, marquee component of this quote-unquote reform package. But it's again, it's something that is really a return to prior practice. Number two, the insurance issue, ongoing medical or insurance assistance. Number three, the scholarship for life, guaranteed scholarships for degree completion. Time demands. And this is really a joke. So they talk about this 20 hours uh, a week restriction, this countable athletically related activities, the CARA that I talked about in the last episode. And it looks good on paper, but they have made a mockery of those restrictions. And then they talk about decreasing time demands out of season. Of course, in this Northwestern case where there's been extensive fact-finding, the Northwestern University documents and their witnesses proved up the fact that this is a year-round enterprise for big-time college football. It's similar for big-time men's basketball. But the court found explicitly that in a calendar year, these athletes only have nine weeks of discretionary time. So this notion that they're going to have a decreased time demands out of season is simply ridiculous. And they know that. So that statement is just fluff. And then they talk about strengthening the academic progress rate, which is a a made up metric that really dumps down the true academic success and graduation stats for the NCAA. They talk about one and done, which is a throwaway issue. Uh, And they talk about a meaningful role in governance. And that too is largely symbolic. 
And let's see, they talk about transfer rules. And that's been, again, that's been on the table for decades. And both the NCAA and the Power Five have done nothing. So they close it out by saying that we acknowledge this agenda could prove to be expensive and controversial, but the risks of inaction or moving too slowly are far greater. The time for tinkering with the rules and making small adjustments is over. And again, the components of this 10-point plan are presented as landmark changes in the relationship between the universities and revenue-producing athletes. But the fact of the matter is, these have been around for a long time, and there really has been little movement on them. So uh, this really isn't a significant change. This is simply the Power Five being forced into a corner because of external regulatory threats. And now they are going to try to get ahead of the game. And it's largely a public relations game that, oh, by the way, basically creates an association within an association that allow the Power Five to do whatever the heck they want to do. So then they close it out by saying, we have to do something immediately, immediately. Okay, so that was mid-May of 2014. Then you had the O'Bannon trial starting in June, and that went from June 9th to June 27th. Then you had the NCAA hiring Brownstein Hyatt, this high-powered D.C. lobbying firm that brings inside the Beltway the NCAA's campaign to eliminate external regulatory threats. And that's a really important move, and it can't be minimized. And in that same time frame, you had this Austin suit coming into shape. So at the beginning of all these big class action antitrust suits, there are all kinds of procedural machinations that have to be resolved before you actually get to kind of a uniform and consensual understanding about what the lawsuit's about. And in Austin, you had these different interests that came with different plaintiff classes, and they were all brought together. And all of these interests were consolidated by Judge Wilkin. And then the operative governing pleading from, I think it was June, the same time frame of 2014, was the joint amended complaint where all these interests are brought together, all the claims are set forth, the parties are aligned the way that they're going to be aligned. And that is an important event in these big time antitrust class action suits. So you really had the beginning of this Austin case, which again, was designed to completely dismantle amateurism itself. And as that case is being procedurally prettied up and then it's moving forward under this new complaint, you don't have a decision on O'Bannon yet, either at the district court level or uh, ultimately in the Ninth Circuit. So as of the time of really the, the beginning of that litigation in earnest in June of 2014, you had this very real threat that a federal court could completely take down amateurism itself. So all of that carries into a July hearing in the United States Senate. And there had been some congressional activity after this Northwestern case. The House held some hearings in May. And remember, the in 2014, the Republicans controlled the House of Representatives, but the Democrats controlled the Senate. 
So you had a, a split Congress. And so you had Republican-oriented and Power 5 NCAA-friendly interests holding some hearings in May on how horrible it was that athletes were going to be employees and they might have the right to unionize. Then in July... You had what I believe is a much more consequential hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee. And remember, the Senate Commerce Committee has original jurisdiction over sports issues. And that's the committee that all this nil compensation legislation ran through in 2020, starting in February uh, of 2020 with hearings in a, a subcommittee of commerce. So it's a powerful committee on sports issues. And Emmert was coming into this hearing with a very specific but completely disguised motive. He was carrying the water for the Power Five. And so the the panel that the Senate Commerce Committee put together for this July 9th hearing was really interesting. And there were two former student athletes, both African-American. One, Myron Roll, a former Florida State football player, was a Rhodes Scholar. And He was a second-year medical student at the time. He played briefly in the NFL, and he was making the case for athlete-friendly reform. And then another athlete, Devin Ramsey, who was a football player at UNC and got swept into the investigation into academic fraud originating in one of the departments at UNC. And he has a really interesting story, and his story is really a testimony to NCAA arrogance and indifference and complete disregard for the rights of the athletes they presumably are pledged to protect. And uh, Ramsey just got put through the grist mill. And he was about to be thrown under the bus by UNC just to get the NCAA to back off in their investigation into this academic fraud issue. And then fortunately for Ramsey, his case came to the attention of one of the true good guys in this entire athletes' rights debate. And that is former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Robert Orr. And he came in and he defended Ramsey in administrative processes, both at UNC and with the NCAA, because uh, Ramsey was being accused of academic fraud and there was really no case there. And it was ginned up and there was all this pressure on UNC. And the UNC Honor Court uh, refused to hear the case because there was simply nothing to it. But the NCAA clung to it and insisted on ruining Ramsey's career. And they did. And Justice Orr came in and, and he stood up for Ramsey. And I think it's hard for people who haven't really interfaced with the big time powerful sports industrial complex to understand how powerful those interests are and how much pressure they can bring to bear on an individual who they want to use for their institutional selfish purposes. And it's almost impossible to fight back against that. But Justice Orr came in and he did that for Ramsey and he wasn't afraid of the NCAA or of UNC's overreaction because of their fear of what the NCAA might do. What he did was truly courageous. It doesn't take any courage if you are an NCAA athletics administrator or a UNC athletics administrator to steamroll some powerless athlete 
and try to preserve your interests. It takes enormous courage to stand up to that. And that's what Devin Ramsey did. And he couldn't have done it without Justice Orr. So if there were more Bob Orrs out there and fewer of these in-system bureaucrats, the college sports world would be a much, much better place. And then you had Taylor Branch, who is a noted civil rights historian, and I've talked about him before, and he was a co-author of the Friend of the Court Brief in Austin, where he talked about amateurism historically and that it's a complete sham. And of course, he wrote this uh, really seminal article in The Atlantic in 2011 titled The Shame of College Athletics. I'm sorry, of college sports, the shame of college sports. And so he spoke eloquently on the historical uh, facts underpinning big time college sports. And then let's see, also for the athletes was uh, Richard Southall, this professor at the University of South Carolina, who I referenced in my episodes on the collegiate model. And he wrote that article in 2013 with Ellen Starowski that really took the collegiate model to task. And then the NCAA had two witnesses, one, a guy named William Bradshaw, who was a former athletics director at Temple. And he was part of some organization, I can't remember the name of it, that was really representing athletics directors' interests. And he came in with all the typical NCAA Power Five talking points. He was a human talking point. And then you had Mark Emmert. And I really want to focus on Emmert's testimony and limit it to really his fundamental purpose here. There were some interesting exchanges. There was some great testimony and some compelling testimony from the the athletes and, and from Branch and from Southall. And I'll talk about that in episodes down the line. But I really want to focus now on why Emmert was there, what his purpose was, and how he portrayed the interests of the Power Five that he was fronting. There was no question about that. So Emmert comes in, and remember, let's look at the timing. And one of the first things Emmert says when he does his description of his written testimony, makes his introductory comments, he thanks the committee for accommodating him on the timing of the hearing. So remember, you have the Northwestern case, then you have this Pac-12 letter, you have the Power Five really pressing the panic button, you have the O'Bannon trial, you have Austin fully formed, and you have the NCAA legislative meeting, their annual legislative meeting coming up in August, and Emmert wanted to make the case for the Power Five without saying that's what he was doing before the August meeting so that he, as the NCAA president, could swage all of these interests in the NCAA that may have been uncomfortable with the Power Five's power grab. And he could say, we laid this out to Congress and it was well received and, and all this stuff. So Emmert, in his testimony, he goes through all the, the talking points about all the wonderful things the NCAA does. And then he puts on his NCAA president sincerity hat and he's going to talk about the need for change. And in that opening montage that I have for this episode, it was a little bit long, but there was a reason for that. I included Emmert's opening comments where he, in his opening testimony, is laying out the case for all of these reforms, but he doesn't put it in the context of the, this background noise, this behind-the-scenes pressure by the Power Five to grant them these extraordinary powers within the NCAA umbrella through the autonomy process. He doesn't talk about that. He does not explicitly say that he is there to 
shill for Power 5 interests. He purposefully disguises that, and it is notable. Remember, the NCAA has very little skin in the game when it comes to big-time college football and the money streams. Actually, it has no skin in that game. And its sole revenue is from March Madness, but it has to appease the Power Five because if the Power Five left, as they threatened to do behind the scenes in 2014, then the NCAA collapses because along with that exodus would go all of the important value pieces in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. And March Madness would be as compelling as a pickup game at the local Y. So he knows that he has to carry the water for the Power Five. And he's playing the same role in 2014 that Miles Brand played in front of Congress in 2003 in the BCS context. And you're saying, why in the world is Brand making this case? Where are the uh, Power Five conference commissioners? Where are the Power Five presidents? And you have to ask the same question in 2014. This reform movement, this campaign for change that Emmert lays out, on July 9th of 2014 is the agenda of the Power Five, but there wasn't a single Power Five conference commissioner. There wasn't a single Power Five president. None of these presidents who drafted these memos or signed these letters, they didn't show up. Why not? Because the purpose of this hearing and the purpose of Emmert's testimony and him being the point person for this autonomy movement was to disguise the true intentions of the major conferences and the university presidents that were demanding the autonomy classification. So in that opening montage, I include what what Emmert says right out of the blocks. And he says, I agree that there are very important changes that need to be made. And many university presidents happen to agree with me. Let me describe the most important ones. It's me, me, me. Mark Emmert, president. Oh, these are my ideas. And by the way, many university presidents happen to agree with Emmert. That is just so profoundly misleading that, and he says it, Emmert just says it as if it's just a statement of unchallengeable fact. So he says, first, student athletes, in my opinion, should be given a scholarship for life. Does that sound familiar? Number two, he says, scholarships should cover the full and actual cost of attendance, not simply tuition, room, and board, books, and supplies. Does that sound familiar? Number three, NCAA schools must always lead in the area of health and safety. Hmm, that sounds familiar too. Fourth, he throws in sexual assault prevention because there were uh, female senators who really focused on that. That, and interestingly, was not included in these Power Five proposals in 2013 and 2014. And then fifth, the insurance, and that's also pulled from the Power Five. And then the academic success of student athletes must remain our ultimate priority. Yep, that, that you throw that into. And then, and here, this is, a, again, a purely political throw-in because this really wasn't discussed at all by the Power Five presidents and the Power Five conference interests in, those, in the confidential memo and then the Pac-12 letter. They say, all changes that are made, these and others, must maintain support for Title IX and cannot come at the cost of student-athletes in women's and non-revenue-generating sports. And that's really just red meat for the downstream beneficiaries to assure them that everything's going to be okay. And these changes are really important. I also include in the montage after Emmert makes that pitch. And again, he's owning it. This is the NCAA's campaign. This is Mark Emmert's initiative. 
And so Dan Coates, a Republican of Indiana, who was the, the villain in this hearing, so Jay Rockefeller is the chair of the committee, and he's a Democrat from West Virginia. He just he launches into Emmert, and he gets into it with Coates, because Coates, being from Indiana, he's an NCAA loyalist. That's the NCAA's home base, and he's going to do everything in his power to promote NCAA interests. So it's clear that Rockefeller and Coates had some contentious back and forth, but Coates comes in. And in an effort to disguise this proposal for change as a Power Five proposal, Coates says, Dr. Emmert has basically said these are his proposals. And I think it goes right to what we're trying to accomplish here. And that was the theme uh, among the senators that were promoting NCAA interests. It was, this is Mark Emmert's show. This is Mark Emmert's reform list. This is the NCAA taking action, like they're saying on nil, or taking action and changing athletes' lives for the better and all this stuff without disclosing the true source of the reform agenda items or the motives for those reform agenda items. So you had Emmert doing what he does best and putting on a public uh, spectacle in university president speak that sounds okay when he's saying it. And afterwards, you say to yourself, what the hell did he just say? And he gets paid $4 million a year to, to do that. And he's pretty good at that. But there was no discussion about O'Bannon. How does O'Bannon not come up when that was really the precipitating event behind a lot of this anxiety that the Power Five had and the changes to the business model that might result from a a federal court ruling that amateurism was just a fraud. And then you had very little discussion about the Northwestern case. At least one Democrat, uh, Claire McCaskill, I'm going to talk about in just a second, a Democrat from Missouri, I think understood that this was a, a Power Five show and made some comments that really just got to the heart of the hypocrisy that Emmert was bringing to the Senate on July 9th of 2014. And there were some other issues that kind of framed Senator McCaskill's comments, but boy, she really nailed it. So when I talked about Northwestern in the last episode, that they used a four-year athletic scholarship rather than a one-year renewable, that was the result of a decision that was made at the NCAA level, I think it was in 2012-2013, that allowed schools, permitted schools, but didn't require them to offer a four-year scholarship. And after that legislation was passed by the Division I leadership, these governing boards that really promote Power Five interests, there was a vote to override that legislation by the full Division I membership, and it required a two-thirds majority to override that decision. And the vote on the override came oh so close, but didn't quite make it. I think it got 62% to rescind the the option to offer four-year scholarships. And the Senate requested the actual vote on that. The NCAA doesn't make this public. A lot of this stuff is just completely opaque and off the books. And one of McCaskill's themes was transparency. And so she was just railing Emmerta on what it took to get the document that simply had the vote of the members. And she was interested in that because she thought some of the the votes against the four-year scholarship were interesting and, and schools that you wouldn't think would be against it. And so in that opening montage, I picked up a quote from Senator McCaskill where she says to Emmert, now, I guess my question to you, Dr. Emmert, is why this 
wasn't made public at the time. And she's talking about the vote on that override of the four-year scholarship. And she says, because I think most of these universities would be embarrassed if they were publicly called out that they were unwilling to give a four-year scholarship to an athlete. So why did it take a request from Congress for this to ever reach the light of day? And I would ask for this list to be made part of the public record. And then she goes on and says, I think that my sense, and I have a lot of questions about transparency of money and about whether or not things are made public. I feel for you because part of me thinks you're captured by those you're supposed to regulate, but you're supposed to regulate those that you're captured by. And I can't tell whether you're in charge or whether you're a minion to them. I don't sense that you feel like you have any control of this situation. And if you have no control, if you are merely a monetary pass-through, why should you even exist? And that really gets to the heart of the role of the NCAA president and the NCAA national office in this dysfunctional triangle between the NCAA national office and the money it gets from the CBS Turner March Madness contract and then the powerful football interests, which are basically running roughshod over Mark Emmert and the NCAA national office. And it's really interesting because when you see it live and the camera goes from McCaskill to Emmert when she finishes that statement, Emmert just has this look on his face like, what do I say to that? Because that's the truth. But he can't say that. He makes it appear as if the NCAA is doing this. He says nothing about the background story on the Power Five's pressure campaign on Emmert and the NCAA. And he's just out there, again, doing what Miles Brand did in, in 2003, and he is the front man. And it's that, that perception, the public perception there, is that this already has the blessing of the NCAA, and this is an association-wide reform agenda. And that's simply not the case. And Emmert was right there in front of a microphone, in front of the United States Senate, under oath, making it appear as if it was his idea and his agenda. And the last quote that I use in the montage really gets to it as well. And Taylor Branch, he understood what the hearings were about. He knew that this was a Power Five gig. And he was diplomatic enough, but he cuts to the chase pretty well, I think. And he's pretty direct. But he says, he says, to me, the least hopeful thing I heard today is that we're looking to the same 65 schools, the Power Five, that are the most commercialized as the engine of reform in the NCAA. And he asks that kind of as a, really, we're doing that? I really don't see that. They may give higher compensation. They may get more tips. And he views this whole list of benefits as just kind of a a tip that a a waiter might get. And, And that's a pretty good characterization. And then he goes on and says, but they're the ones that created most of these problems in the first place. And I don't think that the big schools are going to do anything other than be driven more and more by the market and athletics. And quite frankly, those schools exploit their athletes both as players and as students. I mean, that that's it. That's it in a nutshell. But Mark Emmert succeeded in his job there. He was the human shield for the Power Five. And then less than a month later, on August 6th, the NCAA Division I Board of Directors votes for the autonomy classification. And then it is presented publicly as if it was just this 
obvious thing that needed to be done and it had the support of the membership and look we took it to congress and everybody agrees it's that consensus argument one of the grand tactics that the ncaa uses is to suggest falsely consensus on all these issues and they're able to reinforce that with this spontaneous consent that south hall and starowski talked about in their public relations and propaganda campaigns and they run it through their friendly media outlets and then all of a sudden it's just the way it is and nobody goes back to look at how how the process actually played out, what the motivations were, and who the true power players were. And there could not be a better example of that than Mark Emmert's testimony on July 9th of 2014. And before I close this out and talk about what I'm going to be doing in the next episodes, I wanted to speak about Mark Emmert's written testimony. What I've discussed so far in this episode was really his oral testimony and how that played out and some of the comments that were made. But all these witnesses, before they appear live before Congress, they submit a written summary of their testimony. And Mark Emmert did that. And his written testimony is about, I don't know, 23 pages long. So it's actually long for written testimony. And he's trying to do a grand synthesis of the state of college sports. And I want to identify just a few of the tactics that Emmert uses that are kind of standby NCAA tactics and how they misrepresent the business model to external regulators and to the public. And in particular, this unholy triangle between the NCAA national office, the big time powerful football interests, which basically own the NCAA, and then the NCAA's consolation prize, which is the March Madness contract. And that's important because Emmert used all of these tactics in this written testimony. You also have to remember that this testimony was put together and presented about a month after the NCAA has a formal public relationship with Brownstein Hyatt, this high-powered lobbying firm. And so you have to believe that Brownstein Hyatt was very much involved in putting the written testimony together and prepping Emmert for how his message, or really the Power Five's message, would be best disguised and best received by this particular Senate committee, knowing that there was going to be some hostility there as played out, actually, at the hearing. Of these 23 pages, very little of it. It goes to even a hint of a suggestion of Emmert's true motive here, which is to pave the way for the Power Five takeover. And this document, this written testimony at this July 9th, 2014 hearing, is really a perfect example of NCAA propaganda, the kind of propaganda that South Hall and Starowski were talking about in their 2013 article on the collegiate model. And I'm going to use this written testimony in uh, separate episodes as we get into the May 2019 perfect storm era to connect up how the NCAA really started to take its misdirection campaign led by these external lobbyists and then by antitrust lawyers to basically shape the message for the NCAA. And I want to just go through a few of the features of this written testimony. And as I'm going through this, if you listen to the episodes on the collegiate model, I want you to think about how familiar some of this sounds. So basically, the structure of this 
testimony is that Emmert starts off by talking about all the wonderful things that the NCAA does and using this conflation tactic where Emmert conflates the interests of the entire membership, this half a million uh, student athletes across 1,100 institutions through all three divisions and how wonderful college sports is. And that has the effect of suggesting that the Power Five fit logically within that big tent while also and very subtly suggesting that the Power Five have separate interests. And so Emmert says there's some challenges that need to be addressed. But he says, before I get to that, I want to begin by highlighting a core truth of intercollegiate athletics. And he says, quote, for the vast majority of those who participate in NCAA sports, more than 460,000 young men and women each year at 1,084 institutions across three divisions and in 23 different sports, the experience is exactly what it is intended to be a meaningful extension of the educational process that provides the opportunity for students to compete fairly against other students in in an educational environment. And then to further contextualize and limit his comments, Emmert, he says that there's something else that he needs to talk about before he really gets to the meat and potatoes of his purpose at the hearing. And he says, it may be helpful to reiterate that the NCAA is a membership-driven association. Nearly 1,100 NCAA member colleges and universities work together to create rules for fair and safe competition and to protect the collegiate model of athletics. Uh, Perfect. Okay. We're back to the conflation argument. But now he's doing the same dance that Miles Brand did early in his tenure and in those 2003 hearings where he says, look, hey, I'm just a guy sitting here at the table and I'm just here to be the voice and the mouthpiece of the will of the association and the will of the membership. And I don't have any power here. And then Emmert does the same thing. He says, the NCAA president is hired by the NCAA executive committee, what is now the NCAA board of governors, which comprises college and university presidents from all three divisions. The executive committee also sets policy on association-wide issues and approves the NCAA budget. I work at their pleasure to help schools implement the rules set by NCAA membership and to oversee the daily operations of the association's national office in Indianapolis. For that reason, my role should not be equated with a league commissioner as I do not have those powers. Neither I nor any NCAA national office staff member has a vote on association policy or infractions decisions. Now, again, that is just a breathtaking qualification for Mark Emmert to make to the United States Senate when he is sitting there as the sole representative of the entire business of big-time college sports. And this is what Claire McCaskill was getting at. That's your whiskey, tango, foxtrot moment. If you have zero authority and zero power, and you're saying it's the NCAA Board of Governors and it's the you know power players at the leadership level, why the hell are you sitting here? And Emmert has no answer for that. He simply wants to deflect responsibility away from the national office, away from the office of the NCAA president. And this is the circular firing squad. 
that Condoleezza Rice was talking about in her comments after the release of the Commission on College Basketball. And it is such a fundamental component of how the NCAA lies to external regulators and to courts and to the public about their true motives and who is actually making the decisions. Because it's true that Mark Emmert has no control over the football interest, but he can't say that. Instead, he rolls it up in terms of this broad relationship that the NCAA president and the NCAA national office has to all these more important decision makers. But those decision makers are nowhere to be found. Where are they? Emmert isn't going to say out loud, they're not here because I am fronting their interests and we really don't want you to ask tough questions of these people. And then he isolates the revenue-producing sports by pointing out that those who participate at that level really only represent 3.5% of all NCAA student-athletes. So he's having it both ways, as he always does. And this, again, channels Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and his effort to try to reconcile these two irreconcilable realities in big-time college sports. And one is that the entire business model is premised upon the exploitation of the labor in big-time men's football and big-time men's basketball. And at the same time, trying to accommodate all these other interests that really have virtually nothing in common with the Power Five. But the reason that Emmert has to keep everybody together is because that's the only way he keeps his $4 million salary, the only way that the NCAA national office continues to just vacuum up millions and millions of dollars. And they get to keep the gravy train going through this unholy relationship that I've talked about between big time football, the NCAA national office and the March Madness money. So then after that, Emmert goes into sort of a list of the things that people are talking about in big time college sports and how the NCAA is on top of all of it. And he calls this specific issues of interest. And he talks about multi-year grants, which really weren't an issue that had already been decided, transfer rules, which they did nothing about until very recently, throws in the national letter of intent, which was really not part of the discussion. Then health and accident coverage, he throws that in and that's on the power five list. And he throws in time demands on student athletes and health and safety and the concussion issue and all of these things that really weren't central to his purpose, but it's part of his deflection campaign. So if he's talking about all these things that the NCAA is really focused on and is concerned about and all the wonderful things that the NCAA does and how everybody, for the most part, operates quite well in this one big happy amateurism family across three divisions. As long as we're talking about that, we're not talking about this power five takeover of the NCAA altogether. So then Emmerich gets into a couple of sections that really start to channel Miles Brand. And he talks about student-athlete benefits and this discussion that was part of the Northwestern case. And I just want to read this one sentence because this just shows you how dishonest the NCAA is. And he says, it is our position that scholarship student-athletes are not employees. Indeed, we argue that they are not just primarily students, they are exclusively students. They are exclusively students because both of their major activities of being a student and being an athlete are interrelated in their overall educational pursuit. And that is Miles Brand's 
conceptualization of the collegiate model. And he incorporates that both at the idea level, at the theoretical level, and then uses language that looks like it is pulled directly from Miles Brandt's 2006 State of the Association speech. So basically, he's doubling down on the student-athlete, and then he talks about all the wonderful things that these uh, athletes already get. And again, this written testimony is just chock full of NCAA false narratives, and it's really a treasure trove of NCAA misdirection. And then he goes to the financial underpinning of intercollegiate athletics. And this is a direct ripoff of Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech. And he says, in the world of higher education, we must rely on cross-subsidization, maximizing revenue from the areas that we can generate more than their cost and reallocating the additional revenue to those areas that can never cover their cost. And that, again, is just straight out of Miles Brandt's 2006 speech. And then he goes into a section on how NCAA revenues are used. And he goes through all of this stuff about how the NCAA spends the March Madness money. He says nothing about the fact that the majority of the money that comes in the big time college sports industry comes through football, not basketball. So the only product that is spread around and is used in a way that could be defensively consistent with the NCAA's nonprofit mission is the March Madness money, and it is held hostage to big-time football interests and to the NCAA national office's desire to preserve its bureaucratic state. But Emmert only talks about how that revenue is spread around. And then at the very end of that section, and this just is another great example of just how dishonest the NCAA is about the relationship between the NCAA national office and the big time powerful football interest as a throwaway sentence at the end of that section, Emmert says, it is important to note that the NCAA is not a recipient of any revenues generated by member schools or conference during the regular season or from the FBS postseason bowl games. Now, remember, 2014, we haven't had a CFP national uh, championship playoff. So in, at that time, the bowl games were really the postseason cash cows for big-time college football. But let's see, one, two, that's, that's seven words in this entire document where Emmert says something that remotely resembles the truth of the business model, and that is that the powerful football schools keep every penny of revenue that they generate. And even though he references the Board of Regents case in other contexts in this written testimony, he doesn't say out loud that the reason that the powerful football interests have exclusive access to football money is because they sued the NCAA to get it. And they did it under antitrust laws, the very antitrust laws that in 2020 and 2021, the NCAA and Power Five are trying to strip from revenue-producing athletes as a remedy for these ridiculous compensation limits. And then we get to the most important piece of this entire written testimony. And it's in a section titled Division I Structure and Governance, and it is less than a page long. This is the only part of Emmert's testimony, either his written testimony or his oral testimony, where he even suggests the true purpose of his appearance. 
And I'm going to go through this in some detail because this was carefully written to disguise exactly what the Power Five were asking for. So the first sentence of this section, Emmert says, the issue of how Division I is structured and governed is so inside baseball that at first it might seem irrelevant to this hearing. So right off the bat, what Emmert wants the Senate to know is that this is a really complicated issue. It's really amongst us boys in the NCAA, and we don't really expect you to understand, and it probably doesn't even seem pertinent. And then Emmert goes on to say, but as I have noted throughout this testimony, it is critical to how and which decisions are made. And then he talks about the range of institutions and basically under this big tent, how you have institutions that really have little in common. And Emmert tries to bring that around to this big tent theory. In fact, he explicitly mentions that. And so he says that the NCAA has a big tent approach that exists only for these institutions in the realm of athletics, meaning that outside of athletics, they have absolutely nothing in common. The question facing the Division I membership and its leaders is twofold. If the right governance structure is in place, how will it facilitate consensus on keeping the tent open for all while allowing radically different segments to govern themselves based on their characteristics? Inside baseball or not, this issue is enormously important to the 133 institutions in the states represented on this committee and all of those in Division I. And although we cannot wait for the resolution of this issue before addressing the others I've noted in this testimony, some of those issues may not be fully addressed until the structure and governance concern is worked out. So I'm just going to stop right there because that is so important. What he's basically saying is this is really a big tent issue. What I'm talking about here and these reforms I'm suggesting really are for the benefit of the entire association. And we're trying to figure out a way to reconcile the differences within the membership in a way that uh, makes everybody happy and basically preserves the status quo. This would have been the time for Emmert to come out and say that he was acting under duress of a threat of secession from the Power Five and that they were making demands that would completely alter the NCAA governance structure. And when he says, and although we cannot wait for the resolution of this issue before addressing the others I have noted in this testimony, he's saying we're going to give the Power Five everything that they want. And those things that I presented as my own that really were Power Five demands we're going to do that regardless of this tension, and we're going to have to resolve the bigger picture issues at another time. Then he goes into a paragraph where he explicitly references the 65 institutions. He doesn't use the phrase power five, but he says, central to the division one governance reform expected in August, 2014 are plans to ensure that all 346 division one member institutions continue to compete in the same division. One element of this design is for the 65 institutions in the ACC, big 10, big 12, PAC 12 and SEC act as an autonomous unit that can modify certain NCAA rules. And then he says, some examples of autonomy 
might be the full cost of attendance scholarship, which Emmert characterizes as really a formulation put together by the U.S. Department of Education. Just this simple thing that applies to all students, and he omits the fact that they have been fighting to the death to prevent that very scholarship for decades. And then he says, after the five conferences have acted on legislation as an autonomous unit, the intent is that remaining schools in the division would be free to follow suit at each school's discretion. Wow. (laughs) So in that paragraph, what he's saying is, this is really a Division I initiative. And this goes back to that false consensus idea that Emmert and the NCAA use to promote the interests of the Power Five and the NCAA National Office. And that is, hey, we're just doing this for the best interests of the whole Division I and 346 institutions. And everybody uh, is going to agree with this because this absolutely has to happen. And it's essential to the maintenance of all the things that are great about the college sports and the NCAA. And then they, the only thing they throw in as something that might change would be the full cost of attendance scholarships. And again, how can Mark Emmert talk about autonomy and talk about the 65 institutions in those five conferences and talk about a specific item that they might adopt? And Emmert isn't saying that they demanded this. He's saying one of the things they could do with their autonomy status, that is so dishonest, so profoundly dishonest. For two reasons. One, because that was a centerpiece of the demands that the Power Five made in 2013 and again in the Pac-12 in 2014. And it's also dishonest because that was just one piece of a 10-point plan that Emmert has just presented as his own in his earlier testimony. And now he's not connecting those two things up. And I just, I don't know how he gets away with that. This is just amazing stuff. And I also want to point something else out. If you are familiar with Miles Brand's evolution in the, his conceptualization of the collegiate model and the basic business model of big time college sports and how he justified it, and also familiar with the specific terms of what the Power Five were demanding, the Power Five presidents, the Power Five conferences were demanding explicitly starting in 2013, you see the extent to which Mark Emmert has adopted the ideas and the words of Miles Brand and then the Power Five interests in this written testimony. And nowhere in that document, that 23-page document that is written testimony, does Mark Emmert use Miles Brand's name attribute any of his ideas or words to Miles Brand, where they originated, nor does he cite the November 23, 2013 memo from the Power Five chancellors and presidents, or the May 14th letter from the PAC-12 presidents. He doesn't reference any of those documents, and his written testimony is premised on those documents. And in particular, Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech when Ember's talking about the financial underpinnings of big-time college sports. And why is that important? Because just a few years earlier, Mark Emmert's NCAA accused Devin Ramsey of academic misconduct because an academic advisor hired by the athletics department working for UNC 
who was specifically charged with helping student athletes with their coursework, made some very modest suggestions and changes to a paper that Devin Ramsey submitted. And the NCAA got hold of the emails between the academic advisor and Ramsey and then declared Ramsey ineligible because of academic misconduct. And this occurs in the face of the UNC Honor Court saying, there is no case here. There's nothing to see here. Don't even bring this stuff here because you can't prove it up. That's the way this, the process is supposed to work. The NCAA came in and substituted their judgment for the very processes that UNC has in place to make determinations about academic misconduct. And they declared Devin Ramsey ineligible because of those emails. He didn't get a hearing. He didn't get a phone call. He didn't get any due process. The NCAA just said, you're done. And we have the authority to do that. We can ruin your career. We can ruin your reputation. And we can ruin your life. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. That is the NCAA that I know. And so I wonder if the same standards that the NCAA applied to Devin Ramsey were applied to Mark Emmert's written testimony, would they fire Mark Emmert? for not citing Miles Brand, for not referencing him once and not disclosing that the action items in Emmert's agenda before Congress were lifted from Power 5 documents and Power 5 ideas and Power 5 demands. If a professor at a Power 5 institution saw Emmert's written testimony and compared it to Miles Brand's writings and his speeches and to the Power Five's memo in 2013 and then the Pac-10's letter in 2014, would they turn that over to the honor court for adopting the ideas of others as your own without attribution? That would be an interesting question. The NCAA self-righteously ruins Devin Ramsey's career and Mark Emmert goes before the United States Senate and serves up a pack of misdirection that is really an, an embarrassment to the institutions that Emmert claims to represent. All right, so now I want to switch gears here and talk about some other things that occurred in 2014 that are really important as we set the stage from, from moving into the perfect storm that I began this podcast with. And that really, uh, the crucial p- period is between May of 2019 and up to the present. And I think two of them are the interplay between the NCAA hiring Brownstein Hyatt as a lobbying firm in D.C. and then the change in legal strategy and legal counsel in the Austin case in 2014. And I've talked a bit about the Brownstein Hyatt hire and the import of that. But at the same time, you had a completely different legal team taking over in Austin than was handling O'Bannon. So when O'Bannon was filed in 2009... You had lawyers from the West Coast, and then the NCAA had a firm in Ann Arbor, Michigan that they were using, and these cases were filed, all these antitrust cases, uh, White, O'Bannon, and Austin, were filed in the Northern District of California, so they were on the West Coast, and the selection of legal counsel by the NCAA reflected that, and then they had this firm from Michigan that they had been using for years. In 2014, when this Austin case comes together, you have an entire 
entirely different approach. Gone are the West Coast lawyers. I think they still may have had the Michigan firm in nominally. But the power players in the Austin suit were Wilkinson Steckloff, this firm with uh, Beth Wilkinson, the high-powered D.C. insider. She's the ultimate D.C. insider. And I talked about her in my episode on judicial fealty to uh, the NCAA and amateurism. I think that was episode eight and how important it was to the NCAA to have these really powerful D.C. insiders handling their litigation strategy. And in 2014, not only are they kicking off Austin, they're heading into the appeals phase in the Ninth Circuit in O'Bannon, and then Wilmer Hale gets involved, and Seth Waxman, again, the ultimate D.C. insider, and Wilmer Hale's a D.C. firm. Wilkinson is a D.C. firm, and they brought their litigation strategy inside the Beltway at the same time that they brought their lobbying strategy inside the Beltway, and this is such an important transition when the NCAA fully formed its campaign heading into 2019 to eliminate external regulators. And it was driven by inside the Beltway power players. They knew the decisions were going to be made in Congress and in the United States Supreme Court. And that is when I believe, and I said this in the very first episode, the NCAA and the Power Five, big amateurism, took on all of the features of big tobacco. And it's at this point that the normal decision makers in college sports basically have been benched and you have high-powered lawyers and uh, lobbyists running the NCAA and determining the future of college sports. And in addition to those DC firms, you had the NCAA hiring Skadden Arps, one of the largest and most powerful law firms in the world and the leading expert on antitrust law. So they dispensed with the junior varsity. They brought in the heavy guns, the big guns. And their approach was a take no prisoners, scorched earth litigation campaign and and lobbying campaign to completely steamroll the legal system and the legislative system to get the iron throne of college sports regulation. So... As we're moving forward, we've pretty much set the table to get into this May of 2019 period when we're really dissecting the perfect storm on a month-by-month basis. So we got a little bit of a gap there between 2014 and 2020. And of course, in uh, 2015, a couple important things happened. So this autonomy legislation actually went into effect. So the Power Five conferences, using their new autonomy authority, offered some of the things on that list, that 10-point list, not all of them. But some of them, just enough to get this competitive advantage and to keep the external regulators at bay. And then you also had, and this is really important, the first national championship football games. So the CFP had their first games in 2015. It was a rousing commercial success. And so the Power Five achieved this complete takeover of the big-time college sports marketplace of NCAA governance. And they've created some buffer at the public relations level through this disingenuous campaign to offer these athletes these new benefits under the autonomy, authority, and legislation. So it's a really interesting transition into the perfect storm. Uh, So I think in the next episode, I'm going to set the table a little bit for the perfect storm. But I also want to talk about some things that have happened just in the last couple of months that I think are going to influence what college sports looks like going forward. 
And there's a whole list of things and some things that I think are significant that didn't get a lot of media attention but are worth paying attention to. And it's going to take us into an analysis of all these name, image, and likeness laws. And that is an area that has just been rife with misdirection and with really bad public information. And a lot of what I've seen by people who are opining on these laws is not consistent with what these laws actually say and what they do and what I believe their true purpose is, which is largely to preserve the status quo and protect the institutional interest. But we'll talk about that. And I'm going to classify these bills. I'm going to talk about some bills that illustrate each of the classifications, what the basic component parts are, what the similarities are, what the differences are, and what the net effect will be of those laws if they take effect. And then we're also going to look at what's happening in in the Senate. And of course, we have this Austin case that's going to come down any time now. And then we're also going to look at some of the really important things that are happening completely outside of all the NCAA Power 5 machinations in the free market. This is going to have an important impact on the future of, of college sports. So we'll get to all that. And I'll do a transition episode before we get into the May 2019 period. But this 2014 was, wow, a really important year. And so many things happened. And again, this is going to close out the pay-for-play series. And to tie it back into the very beginning of, of why we talked about this, this autonomy legislation did fundamentally alter the relationship between the institutions and the revenue-producing athletes to the extent that the athletes got a small handful of things that they had been asking for for decades. And finally, under enormous pressure, it took external pressure and a a legitimate threat to the uh, status quo business model for these powerful interests to come up with a way to give these athletes just a little more, not much, but just a little more. So on the backside of all of these pay-for-play transitions going back to the early 20th century and through the autonomy legislation, really not that much has changed. And that speaks to the power of the NCAA. It speaks to the new power of the Power Five conferences, not just at the financial level, not just the market control level, not just the NCAA legislative level, but at the political level and the authority and power that they have in the United States Congress and particularly the United States Senate. So walking through that whole history is important to show that despite all these claims that the in-system stakeholders have made about how much they're doing for athletes and how wonderful athletes have it and how they've never had it better and all these narratives, which I'm going to talk about more specifically when I get to the myth-busting episodes, but all that stuff is just fluff. The actual relationship, the true relationship between the revenue-producing athletes who provide the value in the product and drive the entire industry and the institutions who benefit from that labor has not changed that much. And that's discouraging. And that really ties into Taylor Branch's observation at the very end of that 2014 hearing. And he bottom lined it. And he said, in this system, the the people who have the most incentive to disregard the interests of these athletes and to exploit these athletes are the ones that you're looking to as the reformists. And it's just an absurd proposition, like so many of the absurd propositions in the big time college sports business model. So, all right. So with that, uh, we will close out this episode. And again, I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a pleasure to have you along. And I look forward to having you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 